Welcome to the sermon podcast of Paley Presbyterian Church. The following sermon is by Pastor Becca Bruner. Well, good morning. Once again, my name is Becca. I'm one of the co-pastors here at Paoli Presbyterian Church. For those of you I have not had the pleasure of meeting yet, I'm so glad to be together in worship here in this space and continuing online as well. Uh, Really grateful to be back uh, this week, having been gone last week. um, I really feel so blessed. Um, I named them in in a Facebook post yesterday, both of my church families. I realize there's more than two, but... uh, you're the ones that count the most anyway. Uh, my home church of Lake Grove Presbyterian Church where I grew up, uh, where my dad served as pastor for 25 years and where we got to celebrate his eternal life in Jesus last weekend. It was such a gift to be with them and it's a gift to have been sent by and supported by and prayed for by all of you. Um, kind of feel like if, uh, if what I've been receiving in terms of care and support and prayer from all of you is just like, I don't know, if, if that's what you all are getting, even 10% of what I have received, um, man, we're doing a good job of caring for each other as a church. Um, you all are wonder- wonderful carers, and I, I appreciate it so much. Um, but it is good to be back and to be jumping back into our series on the Sermon on the Mount. And today we're talking just, you know, just uh, about a couple verses, uh, a little bit dense topic today. We're just talking generally about the whole thing, the Bible. So if we, we're just going to get started, we're going to read the whole thing. No. Um, <laughs> But we are. We're going to be talking about, it actually occurred to me when the kids were receiving their Bibles today, it wasn't planned this way. This wasn't uh, structured in this way that they get their Bibles on the day that we're going to be talking about the Bible, but it seems so uh, relevant and appropriate. Um, But to just start out with, I think it's it's important for us to recognize um, that we're kind of at this key inflection point, uh, particularly in the West, uh, just kind of change that, that has been happening over a number of years in the ways that people think about the Bible. Uh, there's a, quite a number of people, I would say, certainly in our culture, possibly even in our church, who kind of have some problems with the Bible. We struggle with it. And there's some number of, of reasons for that. Uh, some of us, our problem is we don't read it. We just, we, you know, it's actually true that in the church and certainly in broader culture, that biblical literacy is, illiteracy, excuse me, is on the rise. Most of us, uh, though we understand what it is, we don't know what's in it because we don't read it. So that's one problem, and, and it, there's reason for that. It's confusing. It's sometimes a little troubling, um, so we just don't read it. Some of us, we do read it. Uh, but then what we read in the Bible we find confusing, we find troubling again, so then man, yeah, let's, just, let's just put it down, and then we're back to problem number one, that we don't read it. However, I think a, a more uh, thorny issue for many of us is that we do read it, but we come across passages that we do understand. It's not that we don't understand it. We do understand it, but we don't like it. Right? There's passages that we read in scripture that we're like, hmm, not sure I, 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 I'm going with that. I don't, I don't like it. I take issue with it. It makes me uncomfortable. I think author Mark Twain speaks for many of us when he says, it isn't the parts of the Bible that I 
don't understand that bother me. It's the parts of the Bible that I do understand that bother me. So if that's you today, if you have ever struggled with the Bible, I hope that this message is encouraging for you today. Because today we are continuing in our series on the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon ever preached, taught by Jesus, the greatest teacher that ever taught. And we're going to learn today what Jesus thinks about the Bible, how Jesus read the Bible. And as apprentices to Jesus, hopefully many of us would consider ourselves that, we are going to learn together with Jesus how we might think about the Bible and how we ourselves might read it also. And we're going to cover a big chunk. I'm going to tell you, we're going to cover a big chunk of the Sermon on the Mount today. We're going to uh, read a good portion, or we're going to look at a good portion of Matthew chapter 5. And so if you have a Bible with you today, I'd encourage you to open it to chapter 5. Uh, we're going to start at verse 17, and we're going to cover, not read all of, but cover 17 through the end of the rest of the chapter. You can also, uh, I tell you a lot, I, I will assume that you are reading the Bible if you're looking at your phone, because we have Bible apps that are so wonderful. So I won't know. Uh, but if you do have a Bible app and you want to pull that open as well, it's just it'll be helpful to have it in front of you. We're going to jump in, Matthew chapter 5 starting at verse 17. Don't suppose for a minute that I have come to demolish the scriptures, either God's law or the prophets. Not here to demolish it, but to complete. I'm going to put it all together, pull it all together in a vast panorama. God's law is more real and lasting than the stars in the sky and the ground at your feet. Long after the stars burn out and the earth wears out, God's law will be alive and working. So pausing here for a second, I want us to think about what Jesus would say the Bible is. What the Bible is. And, and first thing to, to help us understand, when, when referring to the scriptures, uh, Jesus uses this phrase, God's law and the prophets. It's New Testament shorthand for the Old Testament. That's the Bible that Jesus had, right? All he had were those, those books of the Old Testament. They were referred to by the law and the prophets. That was Jesus' Bible. And to Jesus, the Bible is the authoritative word of God. To Jesus, the Bible is the authoritative word of God. Now, from the jump there, we've got some issue, right? Because for us, in our culture, in our day and age, that word authoritative, it's not one we like very much, is it? Authoritative. You know, we, we, we're Americans, right? We, we are the captains of our own ships, the master of our fate, the boss of our own selves. To say that someone or, or something outside of us has authority over us, well, that kind of just rubs us the wrong way. But there's some different ways to think about authority. To give authority to someone or something else is it's essentially to allow someone or something to shape our patterns of thinking and feeling and behaving in the world. Simply what it is, to allow something else to think, shape our way of thinking, feeling, behaving in the world, which is something we all do all the time, conscious and unconscious, all the time. You get in the car, you put on your seatbelt. You are allowing the law of the land to shape your way of behaving. 
You watch the news or listen to the news or read the news. You, in some ways, are allowing whoever is giving you those news to shape your way of thinking. Whoever you follow on social media or whatever celebrity grabs your attention, you are allowing that person to to shape what you kind of consider to be cool or on trend. They all have authority in that way, unconsciously. Or even consciously, you take your car to the mechanic, you say, I don't know what's wrong with it. Can you tell me what's wrong with it? You're giving that mechanic authority over your car. When I went to my hairdresser this most recent time, I finally gave in and said, fine, cut it however you want. And she was very happy that I gave her that authority. So when you think about authority in in this way, it shifts power or shifts the idea from kind of power over this idea of kind of a, a, a liberating power, a life giving power, a helping power. So to say that Jesus believed that the Bible is the authoritative word of God is to say that Jesus allowed, invited scripture to be the primary agent by which he shaped his way of thinking and feeling and behaving in the world in relation to God, himself, and everybody around him. What Jesus taught, or what scripture taught about who God is and who we are, that's what Jesus thought. What scripture addressed in terms of human experience in the world, that's what Jesus felt. And what scripture instructed about how we are to live, that's what Jesus followed. Now, (laughs) that doesn't mean Jesus kind of lived by the bumper sticker slogan. Maybe you've seen it. God said it, I believe it, that settles it right? Like it wasn't simplistic. Bumper stickers never work for good theology. (laughs) Because frankly, if you've ever actually read the Old Testament, it's far too complex, even kind of messy at times for bumper sticker ways of being. But what it does mean is that Jesus willingly submitted himself, himself to the authority of God as expressed through the stories and instruction and wisdom of the scriptures. Jesus invited and Jesus allowed the Bible to be kind of the the plumb line by which he measured what he considered to be true and real and good and what God desired for the world and for himself. So Jesus believed that the Bible is the authoritative word of God. So what did he do with it? How did that affect how he lived? We're going to jump back in, looking at verse 19. Jesus said, trivialize even the smallest item of in God's law, and you will only have trivialized yourself. But take it seriously. Show the way for others, and you will find honor in the kingdom. Unless you do far better than the Pharisees in the matters of right living, you won't know the first thing about entering the kingdom. unless you do far better than the Pharisees. We've been reading from the message version here. Uh, Other versions put it, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Do you know who the scribes and Pharisees were? Right, like they were the, the religious 
leaders of the time, and I point to myself as if I was one of them, but like that's kind of the equivalent, right? Like they were the pastors, they were the leaders, they were the scholars. They're the ones who knew what this book said, and they didn't just know it, they lived it. They were the experts in the law. They were the ones who did everything that the Bible said. So is Jesus actually saying that we're supposed to follow the Bible as perfectly and as obediently as the Pharisees did? Well, if you know anything about Jesus, if you've read any of the other stories uh, in the Gospels, you know, and and somebody could come correct me on this, and I welcome it if you want to, but my sense is Jesus rarely, if ever, I want to say he never used the Pharisees and the scribes as a model example. He never held them up to be like, look at these guys. They really got it right. Like, you read through the Gospels, and Jesus has really no good things to say about the religious leaders of his time, the people who are all getting it perfectly, right? So I don't, I don't think he's making an exception now. Because you see, the scribes and the Pharisees, again, as you read through the Gospels, you see that they drove Jesus crazy. They drove him crazy. He found them maddening because their focus, their motivation, their goal was all on just outward obedience. Do it all right on the outside, and it's good. That's it, period, done, end of sentence. And that's not Jesus' focus at all. For Jesus, his focus, his motivation, his goal wasn't this outward obedience, but whole life deliverance. For Jesus, it wasn't just rote regulation, but leaning into the laws, applying their their deeper meaning to your life. And as you do, you find yourself set free. So for the rest of this this portion of the sermon that we're going to look at today, these next 20 plus verses, this is what Jesus is trying to to lay out, help them understand. And he, he uses these six examples, six different examples of these Old Testament laws to just help them understand and see this freedom he's trying to bring. And so he preaches through these these Old Testament laws, and, and the message version kind of obscures this in the way it changes the language a little bit, but you see it in other versions. He he's actually just using a a, a rabbinic formula. This is the way all the rabbis, and Jesus was a rabbi, all of them kind of did this. They would say this phrase, you have heard it said and then that would be followed by some quotation from the Old Testament. So Jesus does that. You have heard it said, but I say to you. And that's what Jesus does. Then he goes on and he interprets and applies that Old Testament command. So just a couple of examples. You see this in verses 21 and 22. You have heard it said, and here's a quote, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, jumping to verse 27, you have heard that it was said, quote, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. See, Jesus, his whole goal was whole life deliverance. Jesus believed that the Bible has Power, power to free us and power to form us. 
See, according to Jesus, the Bible has power to free us, free us from things that would oppress and enslave us. And make no mistake, no matter how free you think you are, there are so many forces in our world and in our lives that do seek to oppress and enslave us. The Bible frees us. And according to Jesus, the Bible has power to form us. It forms our character, our thoughts, our feelings, our actions to be more in tune with God's heart and God's heart for the world. So I just want to, again, if you've got your Bibles open, we can look at this briefly together. I just want to take a couple of Jesus' examples so you can see what I mean. Jesus said, you're familiar with the command of the ancients, do not murder. I'm telling you that anyone who is so much as angry with a brother or sister is guilty of murder. Carelessly call a brother idiot and you might just find yourself hauled into court. Thoughtlessly yell stupid at a sister and you're on the brink of hellfire. The simple moral fact is that words kill. So I think it's pretty safe to say that here in this room today, and probably in that audience listening to Jesus that day, there's nobody who has actually committed murder. If I'm over-assuming here, please come talk to Jonathan or I later. Some pastoral care and some police intervention might be necessary. But I think we're pretty safe there, right? So Jesus, you know, they've got this law, do not murder, and everyone feels just like, check, done, moving on, I got this thing. And Jesus is like, hold on you're still enslaved. Because all of us are susceptible to the enslaving burden of anger and resentment and bitterness. Again, I'm not going to make you raise your hands here, but I will because I have done this, and I bet you have too, uh, ever been standing alone somewhere. For me, it's like in the kitchen, others it's in the shower, and somebody comes to mind with whom you're in conflict, right? Your husband or your wife or a friend or that person at work that just, and like you're alone, but all of a sudden you're arguing with them. Like you're having, maybe like maybe it's just in your head, maybe you're like actually like saying the words out loud, it happens, where you're like arguing with them, but you're really winning, right? Like it always happens when you're alone, you get all the lines you wanted to say and all those zingers and all the ways that they're just the worst and you're right and in your imagination they go off so sad because you were so right, right? Like we all do that by ourselves, or I do, and again, you can uh, hold that against me later. Um, or... I'm not sure which is worse, uh, you come face to face with that person and uh, just something happens where words start coming out of your mouth or you hmm, encounter them online and words, worse words sometimes start coming out of your fingers and words that you didn't know you had to say and you weren't sure hopefully Jesus didn't hear you say, right? Like when we get into conflict with people, if you have ever had significant conflict with a person, you know what a heavy burden anger can be. And so Jesus is trying to give us a way to be free from that. He said, yeah, yeah, don't murder, but we can do better than that. Jesus is forming us into a people who can give and receive grace. 
So don't keep having that imaginary argument in your kitchen, Jesus says, and, 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 and don't let those words start flying out of your mouth or out of your keyboard. Just go to the person and make it right. Jump now to the next couple of examples. Um, these two, they're tough, and this is why we're talking about them. Uh, they're tough, but I think they kind of go together. They're, I, to me, they seem to be kind of pushing us in the same direction, leading to the same end. Uh, as Jesus teaches on these Old Testament commandments around adultery and divorce, what it seems to me that he's trying to do here is to free us from the oppressive power of objectification and form us to be people who give honor. Now let me explain what I mean here. See, in Jesus' world, men had all the power. Men had all the power. Women had none. So women had to, to depend on men for income, for protection, for security, for identity, for status, for everything. And according to the letter of the law, men could really use their power for whatever they wanted. They could do anything they wanted to or with a woman as long as they did not break the rule, thou shalt not commit adultery. So, look at, our, look at her however you want. Treat her however you please. Stay out of her bedroom, but the rest, it's fair game. Similarly, in regards to divorce, men had all the power. Only a man could initiate divorce. And there were Old Testament commands around if or when or how divorce was allowed, and Jesus quotes one of them. He says, whoever divorces his wife, let him do it legally and giving her divorce papers and her legal rights. That's a passage from one of the Old Testament laws, but there was a lot of debate about how to interpret it. You know, some Jewish scholars interpreted those scriptures to mean that divorce was never allowed. It just wasn't. Or some said, well, in certain circumstances, certainly circumstances of adultery, divorce could be allowed. But there was one interpretation that actually was uh, the most popular at the time that Jesus was preaching this sermon, and it, it was an interpretation that was put forth by a very, very popular rabbi at the time. His name was Rabbi Hillel. And Rabbi Hillel interpreted the Old Testament passages around divorce pretty much by saying any man could divorce any woman at any time for any reason. Have a bad day? Divorce. She cooked a bad meal? Eh, divorce. Don't like how she looks anymore? Divorce. Have a fight? Divorce. Find somebody else you like a little bit better? Go ahead, divorce. As for the woman, ah, good luck. Hope you find yourself another husband who can give you everything you need in the world because uh, you're going to need it. So, here comes Jesus. And to the men in his audience who had all the power, this was a big problem. And to the women in his audience who had none of the power, this was a big 
problem. And Jesus is talking to both of them. Clearly, the women are being hurt. They're being objectified. They're being abused, tossed around with no option for protection or power or recourse. But Jesus makes it clear the men are being hurt too. For a person who is, quote unquote, free to objectify another human being for their own personal gain or satisfaction, that person becomes enslaved themselves. Don't think, Jesus says, don't think you've just preserved your virtue by simply staying out of bed. Your heart can be corrupted by lust even quicker than your body. Those ogling looks you think nobody notices, they also corrupt. See, Jesus is so wise. He, he knows the, that, that, that scripture has this power to free us and to form us like nothing else. And I, I, just to kind of help us wrap our minds around this, I want to pull this into the present a little bit. This is uh, something around which Jesus just knew nothing at the time. This didn't exist at the time, but his words of wisdom speak so true for today. And it's around the issue of modern day pornography. Because of course, right? Of course we know that, that, that pornography is bad for the person being objectified, right? That's, that's not great for that person. That's bad for them. But there's some who would say that, you know, it's sure bad for them, but it's already out there. Who's it hurt if I look at it? Who, who does that really hurt? The argument could be made. But from what we now know, from researchers tell us, it actually does quite a bit of harm. Not just to the person being objectified, but by the person doing the objectifying, the person who's looking. See, researchers now tell us that consumption of pornography, which is rampant amongst Christians and non-Christians alike, just literally looking at it rewires your brain in such a way that people are now reporting an increase in symptoms of depression and anxiety decrease in quality of life, diminished sex life, and possibly even links to increased sexual violence. So what's the point here? Well, in his teaching on these scriptures around adultery and divorce, Jesus is seeking to free us from oppressive power, the oppressive power of objectification that hurts everybody involved. He's trying to free us from that power and, and form us into people who give honor, people who give honor, especially to those among us who are the weakest. We don't have time to go into all the remaining examples that Jesus gives in his sermon, but I, I just, I wanna challenge you, I wanna encourage you in your small groups, in your own personal devotional life this week, read through them and see this pattern over and over again, where Jesus says, hey, let your yes be yes, your no be no, don't make these you know, crazy promises and ways of you know, kind of filling your phrases, just, just be straight about it. What he's trying to do is free us from this need to spin the truth to just be able to be formed to be people who tell the simple truth. In his words about giving, you know, turning the other cheek, Jesus is trying to free us 
from the retaliatory violence and form us into people who work with the power of nonviolent resistance, where Jesus tells us, love your enemies. He's trying to free us from systemic hate and form us into people with great, great power of unconditional love. So, so what? That's what we'll end with. So what? Right? Jesus believed that the Bible is the authoritative word of God that has the power to free and form those who read it. What do we do with that? Well, a very, very simple answer would be if this book is so important, so powerful, so potentially life-changing, it would be pretty simple to argue that we ought to read it, right? And that is what we hope you do. I think at least on this table out here, if not this one, uh, we've got a reading plan online. We want you to actually be reading the Bible yourselves. It really has power. But it's not just that. We're invited to read. But even more, we're invited to dance. I want to raise of hands here. I only had like one, and Maddie's already dancing soon. So one at chapel this morning. How many of you ever took dance lessons? Like as a kid, or maybe as, you know, you got ready for your wedding, or, you know, whatever. Some people people taking dance lessons, right? Great. So uh, I went to a Christian college. I went to Seattle Pacific University. Uh, and Seattle Pacific University was founded by the Free Methodists, who uh, even up into the late 1990s did not allow dancing. They did not allow dancing, they did not allow card playing, they did not allow drinking, they didn't allow a lot of stuff. Um, they didn't allow dancing, uh, social dancing, that is. Uh, they did, um, you know, step into the times a little bit by allowing instructional dancing on campus. Uh, so that's what we did. Uh, when we wouldn't have dances socially, we'd have banquets where there would sometimes be instructional dancing, where they'd bring in an instructor to teach us how to dance. And they'd, they'd get up there, they'd teach us the steps. Uh, for some who needed it, they could even put the little diagram on the floor, you know, for where you're supposed to put your feet. If you really, really needed it, you could, you know, get a little book and read the instructions of how to dance. And, and I learned. I learned how to dance, so watch closely. Uh, I, I told Chapel, you're only gonna see this once unless you come to 10.30, and I guess here at 10.30 you could watch it more times if you're online, but live, you're only gonna see this once because I'm going to teach you how to waltz. So you ready? You ready? Okay, because I'm really good at it. I'm really good. You ready? Here's how you waltz. Thank you, thank you. I'm. You got it right. So now you know how to waltz too, right? I mean, I got the book. I know the book. I did the book. I can waltz, right? Did you say there's something missing? I mean, not to mention a partner, but something just in my own dancing lacks. And in a simple word. That would be grace. There's lacking grace. There's a certain robotic kind of mechanical process when we dance that way. When it comes to dancing, I may know it like a Presbyterian, but I do it like a free Methodist. Am I right? Here's the point. You can know the book, and I hope you do. You can 
do the book, and I hope you do. But without grace, there's not a whole lot of life or beauty or goodness in it. You know, too often we end up producing rule followers instead of Jesus followers, people who are mechanical and unfeeling and joyless and lifeless and judgmental, who mostly end up being known for what they're against rather than what they're for. And then we wonder, why don't people come to our church so they can be more like us? And you know, Jesus knew this problem so well. And yes, he is inviting you to read the book, to know the book, to live the book, but only, only, only as you take his graceful hand and let him invite you by his grace to begin to dance. So I want to invite you to stand and join with me in prayer. And as we do, if you are comfortable doing so, it just helps get into that posture of surrender and receiving to open your hands before you, palms up, ready for what God wants to say and do in your life. Lord, we thank you for the gift of Jesus, for his immeasurable, unknowable wisdom, the wisdom of all the ages put into this person who taught it so well. We thank you that you have given us Jesus and that you have given us your word by which we can know you, by which we can be freed by you, by which we can be formed by you to be more and more like you. So I pray that this powerful word would be at work in our lives, not just so we can be good people and give ourselves religious stars on our shoulders, but that we would be people who know that we are loved by you, people who love the world around us, and so that through us your light would shine. Lord, we pray for anybody in our midst today who is hurting, who is anxious, people who are sick and grieving, people who are wondering what tomorrow will bring. We pray for our world who seems to be in a constant state of struggle, where peace seems so distant. We pray for our church, that you would continue more and more to form Paoli Presbyterian Church, each individual person in it, to be a light on a hill, that you would use us, that the people of this community and indeed of the world would say, I'm so glad that Paoli Presbyterian Church exists so much good is coming through them. May we live in a way that you can use us, Lord. And we pray it in the strong name of Jesus who taught us when we pray to say, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.